Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org. Good morning. Annie here for this morning's forever. Solidarity Breakfast. Politics with your cereal with some culture on top. We went off to two rallies where pensioners and students were pretty clear that getting rid of the federal government's policies outlined in the recent budget were high on their agenda. How did the budget change the industrial landscape for workers? We look at that a bit later with Don Sutherland. Kevin Healy sums up the week in This Is The Week That Was. And finally on the program, we're going to visit a forum that was actually a launch of the Melbourne Activist Legal Support MELS and Amnesty International Victoria, who launched a specialist legal network to protect human rights on Thursday, just as the Victorian government increases search powers for the PSOs. The 3CR annual radiothon is almost here. All donations over $2 are tax deductible. Any amount you can afford makes a big difference. To donate, just call 03 9419 8377 or online at 3cr.org.au. Help keep this mighty station going strong for many more years to come. Radiothon 2017, 3CR, Radio for Change. The federal budget from a few weeks ago has settled in and uh, the federal government seems to think that the most concerning thing about that budget was to stop the idea that they are a slash-and-burn government. Well, it hasn't worked. The cat is out of the bag. Uni students have had a major hit from the budget, as we heard at Melbourne's recent rally as part of the National Day of Action. Tell me uh, what's going on here today. So today students are here protesting against the government plans to increase fees by nearly 8%, which could be a $4,000 increase for some fees, against their plans to lower the HEX repayment threshold to $42,000 and against their plans to uh, decrease funding for universities. What's that going to mean for you as a student? Well, the quality of education keeps on declining for um, students. And the last couple of years, we've seen universities across Australia fire hundreds of staff members 
years. The um, increase in fees means that students are going to be paying way more for their education, but the quality of education isn't going to rise. It's going to begin the process of, ta- of um, pricing young people out of education as well. So this is a pretty all-round attack on accessibility to good quality education. It's two-pronged, isn't it, with the penalty rates cuts as well? Yeah, it means that um, you know young graduates who can't find jobs in their chosen field uh, are going to be earning less money overall, having to pay back their hex debts before they're even earning um, anywhere near the average um, wage for Australians. Uh, it's going to put a huge strain on them. But it's not even just the hex repayments, but also all the other taxes that the government is introducing. So it means that some graduates could be paying up to $900 more tax at the end of the year. Thanks. This government wants to force students to pay thousands of dollars more for our education by raising fees by nearly 8%. They want us to, to force us to pay back our debt when we're earning $42,000, far less than the average um, wage, and only the wage of someone working full-time in, say, a cafe job. This is totally unfair. They want to uh, make us pay back our debts, but these debts are also going to grow faster. And all of this happens at the same time as they are giving out Massive, massive handouts to the super-rich and to corporations. Corporations in Australia are going to get a massive, massive tax cut with this budget. They're going to have to pay $62 billion less over the next 10 years. But students, we have to pay more. For permanent residents and uh, New Zealanders, this budget is also totally unfair. Um, New Zealanders and permanent residents are going to have to pay back far larger debts. How unfair could this budget be? This is an assault, a war on young people. And young people have been targeted by this government for far too long. A report came out that showed that universities and students have already contributed $4 billion uh, to the budget in the last couple of years, but now they want us to pay more. We've also been targeted in the Centrelink auto debt scandal, where young people were the first to be targeted by the government, forced to pay back thousands of dollars of debt that didn't even exist. And also, this government has forced uh, young people into what is basically slave labour, the PATH program, which seeks to pay uh, young people $4 an hour uh, to work, but gives businesses thousands of dollars uh, in return. And if all this wasn't enough, the increase in fees, the cutting of funding, uh, the PATH program and the Centrelink debt scandal... They also want to cut our Sunday penalty rates. All of this points to the need for us to keep coming out against this government, to build a student movement that can respond to the attacks from the government when they come. This government only has the interests of the rich at its heart. They want to give tax cuts to the rich, tax cuts to corporations, but for students and for ordinary people, tax increases, funding cuts and the increase in fees. 
So we need to build a student movement that can respond to these attacks because we know that we can win when we fight back. When they say warfare, we say welfare, warfare, warfare. When they say cut back, we say fight back, cut back, cut back. When they say warfare, we say welfare, warfare, warfare. When they say cut back, we say fight back, cut back, cut back. So our first speaker today will be Adam Bant, the Greens member for Melbourne. The Greens have uh, said that they will not pass Simon Birmingham's horror attacks on students. Please make Adam Bant welcome. Thanks very much. And I also want to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land, the Wurundjeri, and pay respects to elders past and present and hope that if there's a silver lining about some of the discussions that are happening in Canberra at the moment, it's that we might be getting one step towards closer to having a treaty and recognising that this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. You are a great sight here today because this rally isn't just about saying we don't want to go into further debt. This rally isn't just about saying we don't want to have to pay more fees. This rally is about saying Australia should remain a place where no matter where you come from or how much money you or your parents have, Everyone has the right to a good quality tertiary education and everyone who works in a university has the right to be paid well and have a secure job and every university has the right to be funded properly to make sure that the education that we get is a good one. This is about making sure that Australia remains an egalitarian and an equal society and not one like the United States where you only have the privilege of going to university if you're prepared to go into debt to the point where you have a small mortgage. This is about making sure Australia is an equal society for everyone and that we have education for all, not just the rich. I was very, very pleased to be standing here with you back in 2013 when the Labor government said that they were going to try and balance the budget by ripping $2.3 billion out of universities. I was very pleased to be standing here with you in 2014 when the Abbott government said that they were going to have a 20% cut to university funding and going to make students pay $100,000 for degrees when it was all completely deregulated. And I am so, so thrilled to know that since we last stood here, we've kicked out a Prime Minister, we've fended off a bunch of budget attacks, and the Greens will stand with you in blocking this in the Senate. And I feel absolutely confident that if we build from here and make sure that people around the country understand the strength of feeling about making sure Australia remains an equal country, that we will stop these cuts in their tracks as well. When I studied many, many years ago, my youth allowance, or our study it was, as it was called then, was enough for me to pay my rent and I only had to work one shift a week uh, to, to, at the university bar on a Friday night, which wasn't too hard to do, but I only had to work one shift a week to make ends meet to ensure that we had a good life. And three of us lived in a share house and it cost $60 a week rent and we had $120 a week coming in. So that was enough to get by. And I think people don't understand now 
that youth allowance is so low that people have to work around the clock just to have enough money to live. I think people don't understand that when someone like me graduated from an arts law honours degree, I had a total hex debt of $12,000 and people are paying almost that per year now, let alone for a whole degree. And what does the government do? What does the government do? Instead of saying we need to put more money into education so that we can bring down debt and relieve the pressure on people and so that we can lift youth allowance, it says we are going to take the axe to the young, we are going to take the, the, the axe to education again in this country in an attempt to balance the budget, at the same time as saying that they can find $63 billion so that the biggest companies in Australia and in the world can enjoy a tax cut. Well, they have got their priorities wrong and we are going to stand up to them and make them change their mind and if they don't change their mind in this upcoming budget, then we are going to change the government and put in place one that we will hold to account to make sure that we fund universities. There are signs here saying, bring back free education. And people say, well, where will the money come from? Well, maybe there's a joint strike fighter that can't in fact fly yet that we could cut and instead put that money into funding free education. Maybe there's a wealthy company that hasn't yet paid any tax anyway, but one of their neighbours down the road is, and so instead of giving them a handout, maybe we can say it's time to ask companies to pay a little bit more tax and ask the wealthy to pay a little bit more tax so that we can put the money into free education. This is the turning point. This is the turning point, I think, in something very, very exciting, because we are seeing right around the world, people are saying, we have had enough of this idea of trickle-down economics. People are saying, we have had enough of saying that the only way to fund our universities is by putting students into more and more debt. People are standing up and saying that the societies that are more equal are the societies that are better places to live. And people are saying, if we have to ask the wealthy to pay a little bit more tax so that everyone can enjoy free education, then that's the kind of society we want. So you're not just fighting for us, for yourselves, you are fighting for a better country and I applaud you for it. I applaud you for it because what you are doing is going to make life better, not just for you, but for everyone who comes after you. But to do it, we are going to need to be strong. We are going to need to be strong over the coming weeks and the coming months and this rally needs to be twice as big the next time we have a rally and then that rally needs to be twice as big the time after so that the government goes to the next election where we're having a competition of not who can cut the most to students but who can give the most to students and to higher education. So that's what we've got on our plates for the next couple of years. And I want to just finish by saying this. Youth unemployment is rising and if you get a job it's much more likely now when you graduate to be a part-time job that's not going to be enough to pay the rent. The cost of buying a house is now out of reach. It used to be back in the 90s that the, uh, for a recent graduate the cost of buying a house was about six times an average young person's income. Now the average cost of buying a house is 12 times an average young person's income. Unemployment is going up. Casualisation is going up. The cost of living is going up cost of housing is going up. 
The answer to this is not to put students into more debt. It's to have the kind of policies that will bring unemployment down, that will provide secure jobs and real jobs for people, that will make housing affordable again. And instead of throwing everything over to the market, let's say it is the job of the economy to work in the interests of people. People should not have to sacrifice their lives and their standard of living for the good of wealthy companies at the top. The economy works in the interests of society, not the other way around. It is time to end the war on the young. It is time to end the war on the young. It is time to say those at the top need to pay a little bit more so that we can have a more equal society. This is the tipping point of creating a better Australia and I applaud you and the Greens will fight with you every step of the way. Affected. Women take longer to pay back their hex debts than their male counterparts, find it harder to find jobs in fields such as science and medicine as men, than men do, and are paid 70 cents to every man's dollar. So standing up for women is our next speaker, Abby Stapleton. She's the NUS uh, Women's Officer this year. Please make her welcome. Hi, everyone. Um, firstly, I would like to pay my respects to the elders past and present and acknowledge that we are meeting on Aboriginal land which was stolen and never ceded. It's fantastic to see so many angry students out here today. Given the recent attacks on our higher education system last week, it has never been so important to come out and protest against the Liberals and promote the right of all students to an equitable, accessible higher education system. As the NUS Women's Officer and as a woman enrolled at university, I would like to talk about the ways that women will be affected by this budget. We're never going to pretend that, or hope that one day the Liberals will find a shred of decency and provide for an education system which allows women to have the same opportunities as men. Which is why the Liberals need to be held accountable and need to be shown by students like us that women are not the doormats that they would have us be. Maybe Julie Bishop and her continuous need to show how much she hates other women has given the Liberals this weird idea that women at university are there to be walked over. How wrong they are. I think that the, the fact that there are mostly women out here today shows how willing and how eager we are to fight back against these cuts. Women make up 56% of all enrolled university students, yet our nationwide average earnings is $52,000 compared to $72,000 for men. This is obviously a problem. This is called the pay gap. This gap exists because women are discriminated against in the workplace because women are overrepresented in the casual work sector, but also because sectors dominated by women workers are underpaid, because women's work is undervalued. 97% of workers in the early childhood education sector are female and are paid just $20 per hour. This is just half the national average wage. Australia has fallen behind and slipped from 19th to 46th place in the Global Gender Gap Report under the Liberal government. So the pay gap exists, women lose out in the workplace, and the Liberals want to lower the tax repayment threshold to fit from $56,000 to $42,000. If we're earning an average of $20,000 less than men, we will be the most severely impacted by this. More than 180,000 new graduates will be caught up in this change. 62% of them will be women. There is no question that lowering the repayment threshold will mean that more women will be condemned to a lifetime of debt. On top of this, they want to rip $2.8 million out of the higher education sector. 
For those of, so for those of us already at university, we can expect to see our student services stripped, staff cut, courses cut, contact hours cut. We are not paying tens of thousands of dollars for a half-assed education. Universities Australia have come out and slammed these cuts to higher education, but we all know that if the budget is passed, universities will immediately pass the additional costs onto students. In fighting back against the Liberals and the government, we also need to be fighting back against university administration and vice-chancellors, who are not our allies in this fight. They will be the first to cut staff and put the cost burden on students so they can keep their million-dollar salaries. On top of cuts to higher ed, the Liberal government will cut penalty rates for retail and hospitality workers, making it harder for students to support themselves at university. 700,000 people will lose $77 per week, most of whom will be women. Women make up 57% of hospitality workers and 62% of retail workers and rely heavily on Sunday and public holiday rates to get by. $77 a week may not mean much to a politician who earns upwards of $180,000 per year, but for a single mother who does casual shifts in retail, it could be the difference between paying rent and putting food on the table. Women, working women are not the ones dragging down this budget. We are not the ones to blame for the budget blowout. We are not the ones who have been careless with money. But according to Scott Morrison, we are the ones who will have to pop up and pay in order for these rich, self-serving politicians no to continue cuts, living a life no of luxury. Fees. No corporate university. No cuts. No fees. No corporate university. No cuts. No fees. No corporate university. No cuts. No fees. No corporate university. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie. We were just listening to the uni students' reaction to the recent budget federal government budget, well, fair go for pensioners took to the streets as well to voice their displeasure at rising costs and attacks on pensioners. 3CR, do you want to tell me why you've come to this uh, rally today? I've come for the, for the pension, for the, the bills, electricity, gas, everything is go up, who can afford to buy. Right. And so you expect the government to actually act as a government and actually consider you? We expect to do something for the pensioners. Not all the time to, to take money, to give a little bit and uh, to, to respect. Because we're working very, very hard all our life. And now nobody looks after us. All right? Are you concerned about the uh, changes to the way they have organised the housing? You know what we like? We like uh, the bill... Not up all the time. All right, give us a little bit uh, uh, rise for the pension and triple for the bills. How we can afford to pay? How we can afford? They give us five. They wanted to take us twenty-five. That's not very nice. You have to you have to adjust. You have to the bills supposed to be down. Supposed to be. Uh, to be the same, the, the pension. Oh, well, to be proportional to the amount yeah. of money you get. Yeah, anyway. So you've come out here today to show yeah, your displeasure. we come here yeah. today to, to complain because uh, we're up to here. <laughs> All right. Give it a little money, but not enough is the coffee. Yeah. That's all. <laughs>
Can you tell me why you're here today? I'm here in Melbourne to speak at Fair Go for Pensioners post-federal budget rally. Uh, it's a nasty federal budget. The, the attacks on welfare, recipients, on welfare recipients are a little subtler um, and more targeted, but um, no less harmful. So that's why I'm here today. That's interesting because there's uh, quite a few older people here who are obviously pensioners, but people are missing the point actually. There's a, a broad range of pensioners, aren't there, in our community? Yeah, and actually, Fair Go for Pensioners, they, they understand this. They get that everyone who's on a welfare payment, regardless of the kind of payment, regardless of their age, um, all have the same common interests and all need to... Um, band together. So even though they call themselves fair go for pensioners, um, they recognise that there's a need for, you know, whether you're on New Start or the parenting payment or the disability pension or whether you're a student, you know, you all face the same issues. You know, payments are extremely low, they've not kept up with community standards and the obligations that are attached to those payments are becoming increasingly strict and unfair. So, yeah, I mean, um, an attack on pensioners is an attack on unemployed people, an attack on unemployed people is an attack on pensioners, and an attack on single parents is an attack on everyone else on Centrelink payments. You know, we all have to um, band together. Now, you are from South Australia Anti-Poverty Organisation, true? Yeah, I'm from the uh, South Australian Anti-Poverty Network. We're a, um, a broad alliance of people on welfare payments, from students all the way to, um, to age pensioners. and. We set ourselves up deliberately, unlike that. You're like a group that was um, broad enough to be able to attract people in lots of different um, payments. We're not just a group for single mums, so we've got plenty of single mums in our group, and yeah, they're often the um, backbone of um, the anti poverty network. We've got plenty of unemployed people, younger and older, plenty of people with you know, significant health issues on the disability pension, but we understand that um, you know our only chance of um, re resisting any of the attacks on welfare recipients is to be united. And I think there's often a divide and conquer thing where you know you have the uh, deserving poor, you know the people on w welfare payments who are the good guys because they earned their welfare payments. Then the undeserving poor, which normally means the unemployed. And and again, I think. Fair go for pensioners, you know, by broadening up their coalition to include unemployed people and people and other Centrelink payments, they get that, you know, we can't let um, divide and conquer win, that everyone on a Centrelink payment um, has a right to that payment and that, you know, like it would be disastrous for like any of us to, to turn on each other. Uh, yeah, it's interesting, if we look at the unemployed, they want to increase the amount of hours, free hours, that people have to dedicate to uh, voluntary work, 25 instead of 15. If you calculate it down, it's about $10 an hour. That's right, yep. yep. Below the minimum wage, and like a lot of these activities, let's be frank, are actually pretty useless. They're, they're busy work. They don't in any way get a job seeker any closer to work. Some of the... Well, if they were real work... If it was real work, it would be paid at the uh, slave related yeah, rate. Would be paid at, at least the minimum wage. And the fact is that you know it's sort of starting at the the wrong place. You know what is unemployment? Unemployment is you know like an issue of there not being enough jobs to meet demand. It's not an you know it's not to do with the characters or the work ethics or the skill sets of 
job seekers or unemployed people not trying hard enough. So the idea of like increasing obligations for unemployed and thinking that this is going to help get them into the workforce because it's an incentive for them to go out there and find work is um, victim blaming. But also it's really that um, it's undermining the actual uh, wages scale for people who are employed. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. In fact, like in the case of Work for the Doll, we actually have evidence of this, uh, a um, Productivity Commission um, report back from 2004. When Work for the Doll was quite a bit smaller than it is now, I actually found there was a negative impact on wages of between 2 and 4%. And that was a version of Work for the Doll that's a lot more targeted than what we have at the moment. So we have, we have no doubt that when you force unemployed people to do things for free, um, you know, that's also harmful to people in the um, workforce. Thanks. The 2017 federal budget includes a requirement for new and existing single parents who receive federal benef government benefits to prove that they're not in a relationship by having a third party verify their relationship status. It's incredibly offensive, paternalistic and punitive. The ramping up of the verification process includes the threat of up to 12 months imprisonment for individuals and their guarantors if they provide false information. In information released after the budget is that all single parents receiving parenting payments, single and new start will have to go through this process. The projected savings is 93.7 million over five years, which amounts to 0.01% of the total welfare bill and the cost of making every single parent go through this process is not provided. It harks back to the 1970s when single mothers were subjected to visits by DSS officers who would check their closet for men's clothing to see if they were in a relationship. I thought we'd move forward. Why is an adult signed statement not enough as it is for other aspects of life? Why is it being assumed that starting a new relationship means the new partner will take on the cost of raising the woman's children? Women have a right to date without it jeopardising their government benefits. And if the government's concerned about the cost of supporting mothers, single mothers and their children, why not chase the $1.5 billion in unpaid child support through the Child Support Agency, which doesn't even include the money that's not provided through private arrangements? Single mothers are struggling to make ends meet. They're living on insufficient government benefits with unpaid, part-paid and late child support payments that are often not enough to cover the cost of living if paid in full. A third of single mother families are living in poverty and the vast majority of these are headed by women. Children are missing out on basic necessities like school supplies and participating in activities that all children should get to do, like weekend sports. There's no new federal money to assist with the rising cost of education and families are struggling as they're after the school kids bonus ended last year. In fact, there is little to change the fact that 40% of children in single-parent fam families are in poverty, compared to only 12% of families with two parents. There are some other worrying budget measures as well. The expansion of the Parent Next program is intended to support single mothers with future work and study options, and it might be helpful for some single mums. 
but it also equates to forcing parents into activities before mutual obligations kick in when their youngest child turns six. And this increases their risk of losing their income through the punitive demerit point system if they can't attend. They've ramped up the demerit point system to three strikes and you're out, which potentially will leave families hungry with no income for up to four weeks. Failing to attend an appointment without a reasonable excuse, which will trigger the system, is open to interpretation of what's reasonable by job provider staff, who are often young and have no idea of the realities of parenting, what it means to have a sick child, or how hard it can be to get out the door on time some days. They're also streamlining seven different payments into a job seeker payment that could be very worrying for those who start benefits after the changes come through. There's no real assistance in the budget to overcome the greatest challenges for single mother families. The cost of renting or buying housing and the lack of permanent part-time jobs that accommodate the family responsibilities the single mothers simply cannot default on. Single mothers have to put their children first. So if they can't find work that fits into the hours available, what are they supposed to do? Not all of these measures will go ahead and we'll wait to see how Labor and the independents respond. But overall, the federal budget continues to punish hardworking single mothers who should have the respect of our society for the work they do, raising their children and providing the best future they can for their kids and themselves. Thank you so much, Jenny, and very well said. Isn't it amazing that this government, this federal government, grovels at the feet of the rich and powerful, runs to the United States to grovel at the feet of that idiot Trump, and yet can't find any money to look after single mums. What an utter disgrace they are to the world. The next speaker is Owen Bennett. Owen is president of the Australian Unemployed Workers Union and there's another group that are being badly treated. Welcome Owen. Thank you Frank. What a disgrace it is that yet another year has passed and we're here protesting against another slate of cruel attacks against Social Security recipients. Another year and we're here again saying Social Security recipients should be respected and should be allowed to live dignified lives. What a disgrace that is! Unemployed workers, as always, are being targeted and they're being vilified and demonised by this government. This budget is being built on the myth of the dole budget and by attacking unemployed workers. Some of the attacks they're rolling out, I'm sure they've already been mentioned, but I think it's worth going over them just to really understand what this government is trying to do. They want to drug test unemployed workers. They want to make it a condition of receiving an unemployment entitlement that you be drug tested. Talk about a punitive system. They want to give job agencies more powers to penalise unemployed workers, kick them off the dole. They want to force more people under cashless welfare, which is a system that doesn't work. 
They want to investigate single parents for welfare fraud. And they want to cut Centrelink staff across the board. All these measures designed to harass, humiliate, and, and just penalise unemployed workers and social security recipients. But I think it's worth having a think about what the government are trying to do here. And they're trying to create myths about people on social security. They want to try to create an identity about what, it, what people are like who collect social security. They want to create this image that people on social security are drug users, criminals, can't look for work, are dull bludgers, can't manage their money, we need to put them on cashless welfare, they're rotters, we need to investigate them for fraud, and the myth that we spend far too much money on social security, so we need to cut staff across the board. Just think about those myths for one moment. They're calling people drug users. Well, there was only hun uh, 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 there was about a thousand people who were actually penalised for using drugs last year, across the board. That's uh, out of, of over about a million people who collect, who are using the job agency system. And they want to give pa more powers to job agencies to penalise people. Well. Last year, there was two million penalties imposed on unemployed workers, which is ten times the amount five years before that. So they've already got enough powers. They're already going completely over the top with how many, how many penalties they're imposing on Social Security recipients. They, the last thing they need is more powers. And this idea that people can't look for work, so we need to force them into more more appointments, more activities, more work for the doll. There's no work. There is no work out there. What this government is doing by creating these myths, they're trying to distract people from the reality of Australian society. They're trying to distract people from the government's own failure to create enough work, the government's own failure to create a humane social security system. These are the government's failures. And by creating these myths of the drug user, the criminal, the doll bludger, the people that can't manage their money, what they're doing is trying to shift the responsibility away from themselves and onto Social Security recipients. It's clear as day. They've been doing it for years. And they're just ramping it up because it's been working. You know why it's been working? Because people haven't been getting angry enough. We need to get angry. And it's so good to see so many people here today getting angry. People haven't been getting angry enough at these lies. Just lies after lies after lies, demonising unemployed workers, Social Security recipients. We can't abide it any longer. The more they tell lies, the more they'll get away with it. But if we get angry and we mobilise and organise all our friends, our communities, our families, our friends, we call them out on their lives. They won't get away with it any longer. So it's so good to see so many people here starting that movement because we've got a long way to go. These myths are so entrenched because they keep doing it every budget. Every budget they come out with the same myths of the dull bludger, the, the criminal on Social Security. Let's 
We're out there to break down these myths and create a humane social security system for everybody. Thank you very much. annual Radiothon is almost here and in 2017 3CR is Radio for Change. From June the 5th to the 18th we're asking you to help us stay on air by making a generous donation. Any amount you can afford makes a big difference and all donations over $2 are tax deductible. To donate call 03 9419 8377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au 3CR Radio for Change. Yes, it is Radiothon time. Well, it's coming up shortly. So if you've got any change, if you've got anything bigger, then uh, perhaps you can uh, send it 3CR's way. Earmark for Solidarity Breakfast uh, in order to keep the program going and to keep your favourite radio station for change on air. Now let's get back to the federal budget. I know it's boring, but in actual fact, it's very illuminating. If you actually look at the federal budget, you'll see that no one except perhaps the Treasurer believes the projections, which is extraordinary. He just stood up there and said a whole lot of stuff that are provably false. In fact, they are just ridiculous. So in a period of unemployment and underemployment and workers with buying power less than in 2012... The idea of growth and jobs seems like a dark joke. So I spoke to Don Sutherland, former AMWU senior negotiator and now a left-leading pundit, about what it all means. Yes, well, there are heaps of things happening that are very important for uh, rank-and-file workers and also among them the activists uh, in uh, the union movement that are trying to reach out to workers who have joined unions and others. Now, one of them, one of the things that's happening, of course, is there are literally dozens of disputes all over the country, and um, uh, all of these are, you know, quite bitter to one degree or another. Uh, but sitting above it, also right now, as you say, we have the national uh, annual wage review or national wage case, to use the jargon, and that decision is going to be announced soon. Now, in that, the ACTU claim is for a $45 per week increase in the national minimum wage, which would take it to uh, $18.89 an hour or $717.70 a week. And that would apply up to the base tradesperson level, including the base tradesperson, and for workers employed, employed at, in classifications above the base grade, it's a 5.7% claim. Now, the Australian government has taken a cautious and oppositional approach to that claim, and although I can't see that they're being specific, they seem to be arguing for, and this bit gets to be a hilarious, a 1.5% increase in the national minimum wage. Now, why is it hilarious? Why is it hilarious? Well, we'll come to that in a moment, but in brief, it's because it is totally contrary to their uh, projections, uh, planning projections for the federal budget, which talk 
at 2.5% and higher wage increases. We'll mm-hmm. come back to that. The other, uh, uh, the employers generally are opposing, strongly opposing the ACTU claim. Uh, and for example, the Australian Industry Group, which is the major employer body for manufacturing workers and some other sectors as well, uh, is arguing for a 1.5% increase, which translates as um, an increase of $10.10 a week uh, up to the up to the uh, C10 or, or the base or the base tradesperson level. It's at the whole thing's at its final consultation stage, and uh, we, we can now sort of perhaps uh, delve in a little bit to your question about why it's hilarious, because the position generally is that everyone is now uh, talking with some degree of concern and amusement that uh, uh, spending power is down because wages are down, trending down. And in the federal budget, against all logic, the... Uh, the Morrison budget projects that wages are going to grow, that they're going to grow by 2.5% in 2017-18 and then successively in the next three years, 3%, 3 3.5% and 3.75%. Now, before you go on, uh, it's already been shown by... Uh, economists that actually these projections have never been reached that the uh, that it's at least half the amount that they expect to get consistently and that in actual fact the uh, the uh, spending power of people uh, is less than in 2012 and in fact uh, it hasn't. Inc- it's in a worse position. More p- people are in a more parlous position than during the GFC. Yeah, yeah you're exactly right. That's all of the pundits. In fact, in an article in the Sydney Morning Herald a couple of days ago, Jess- Jessica Irvine, who is a pundit, said every uh, every pundit, every commentator uh, has pointed out that these are unreal projections from the Morrison budget. Uh, Now, the second sense, just to reinforce how correct you are, uh, she also referred to uh, new research conducted within the Reserve Bank of Australia, which, of course, is one of the architects of the scheme of things that keeps suppressing wages, uh, new research is showing, uh, reinforcing that point, that uh, firstly that uh, wage levels are being suppressed and secondly that the uh, predictions or projections of the Reserve Bank, not just the Commonwealth, uh, not just the Commonwealth and its budget, have exaggerated wage increases. They've never been able to internally understand what is happening in the real world around wages. And that's the Reserve Bank. Mm. And then that particular article goes on and says, it speculates, that's the word, it speculates that it might be because of the loss of workers' bargaining power. 
and that that's an international phenomenon. So all of this is really rather funny. What all of these architects of wage suppression are in some way grappling with what they have done and what problems it's causing for their management of this system of exploitation. Now, that's, incre- that's increased uh, and uh, exacerbated by the Fair Work the Act. Fair Work Act. The Fair Work Act. Well, I think that uh, the Fair Work Act is not the only, but it is a principal factor in uh, robbing workers of and denying work bargaining power. And it does that in a number of ways that, that we've discussed um, in the past. One of them is through uh, the use of penal powers or repressive penalties against workers who are keen to use and able to use uh, industrial action to uh, uh, prevent companies from dodging their agreements and using industrial action to get improvements in wages and conditions. Now, just, just think about this. It beggars belief that this government would improve the Fair Work Work Act from the point of view of workers so that they could improve their wages and conditions. It beggars belief. So that particular, this particular principal factor in suppressing wages is not going to be fixed by this government. So where does it get to a point where its own projections on wage increases are going to occur. It would occur because if there is a significant reduction in unemployment and if there is a significant reduction in underemployment, whatever is going on with laws, that potentially increases workers' buying power. No, that's interesting because um, there's been... an. that's not going to happen either. No, no, because there's been this... um obvious uncoupling uh, of the the normal traditional uh, connection between wages growth and unemployment and underemployment generally speaking if uh, there's uh, at the moment I mean there's a couple of things going on here uh, for workers as well as the system that uh, exploits them you've got a comp- uh, you've got a government that is uh, basically saying that it's going to go into a surplus for some reason or other but in actual fact are going to end up by 2020 uh, um, with a deficit of 45 billion dollars apparently. They say that they're going to uh, expend $9 billion on infrastructure, uh, extra spending, except uh, $75 billion, except that actually it, when you do the figures, it actually shows that uh, their actual expenditure on infrastructure is going to be less than, uh, than you know, like it's... it's, it's 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 less than it's been, like it's contracting. The, the government's contracting their spending. And so what I'm wondering is that with this uh, underemployment, uh, unemployment, uh, lack of tax dollars for uh, the government to actually do their work, and this fantasy that the federal government is pushing, who are they, who are they uh, delivering this message to? Well, who, Whose bidding are they doing? Well, I think 
they're desperate to to develop a budget that breaks away from the um, so-called uh, austerity budget of 2014. They're desperate to break away from that. So they've tried to construct a budget that shows or pretends that they are on a different pathway. Uh, associated with that is that Australia's infrastructure uh, investment is in dire straits, and there's all sorts of ways we can talk about that. But uh, as Jim Stanford, who is the economist at the Centre for Future Work, which is associated with the Australia Institute, uh, as he has pointed out, not only are there, uh, there are going presses and trains on the Commonwealth Government's own infrastructure planning because of its uh, problematic wages projections, there is also no uh, significant momentum for private sector investment in new capacity, in new machinery, equipment, technology. There are serious problems with capital investment coming from the private sector, even though the volume of profits, generally speaking, are reasonably strong, that is not being translated into the sort of growth in private sector fixed assets investment is needed. And therefore, that puts that raises all sorts of other contradictions to do with employment levels, employment security, and so on. So uh, the whole scene is riven with counter-tendencies and contradictions and messiness, and that leaves, therefore, an alternative government with, uh, you know, really uh, problematic challenges. Uh, so if a Labor government or a Labor with green support type government uh, was to come into existence, which we would all hope for, uh, then, you know, the onus is going to be on a Labor government to try and sort that out. It can't try and dodge it or just mess about at the edges. It's going to have to sort that out. Well, it's interesting because for me, I, I, I ask the question, I, I have a sort of a more pessimistic or Machiavellian view of life, really, and I'm thinking if they run down the system so uh, abysmally, uh, say for infrastructure, just as an example, in steps uh, Transurban, who says, oh, I can fix this up, and uh, yes. if they uh, do that with the hospitals, oh, some American company, oh, we can run that. You know what I mean? And that's what they yes. are doing, aren't they? Well, it, it, yes, the pressure for privatisation is and corporatisation of, of, of public services is constant and increasing. And I think that's very true of uh, health infrastructure and health recurrence and so on. So, I think the, if we if we think a little bit about uh, you know generally speaking about how uh, labor might handle the industrial relations situation, if return to that, yeah. On I think it was on May the twenty second, there was a meeting between um, a delegation from the Australian Council of Trade Unions. I assume the president Jed Carney and, and the secretary. Sally McManus were there and probably some other leading uh, national secretaries of unions uh, with 
the ALP, and I'm not sure who was in the delegation from the ALP apart from Brendan O'Connor, the Shadow Minister. Now, that meeting, uh, uh, I'm led to believe, discussed the sort of reforms that the ACTU would like to see to the Fair Work Act. Um, Sally McManus, in general, has talked about how important it is to um, restore workers' right to strike. She's focused upon uh, things like, uh, in enterprise bargaining, like the um, incredibly powerful right of employers to uh, uh, spin out and delay bargaining and then also make applications for the cancellation of agreements and, and pushing workers back towards uh, the awards, which there's a big gap between the enterprise agreement, wages and conditions and awards. So oh, and also the, the, latest thing, the latest thing they're doing, of course, is locking people out. Yes, there's lockouts, which they have the, the, the power to do under Labor's Fair Work Act of 2009. Uh, they also have the power to shift, to go on strike with their own capital, which we're seeing a bit of that, uh, quite a lot of that actually, and also the relocation of capital overseas. So the employers have enormous power over workers during the bargaining process, and it includes the construction of bargaining so that it's penalties can be invoked against workers who exercise solidarity uh, with other workers who are in a tough struggle, like, for example, in CUB, uh, like the Fletcher insulation dispute, like the current uh, Carter Holt Harvey dispute in Myrtleford, uh, like disputes in the Commonwealth Public Service, all enterprise bargaining disputes in which the Fair Work Act makes it extremely tough for workers to win their just claims for improvements to wages and conditions. Now, in the discussions on May the 22nd, the big thing about those is that there is hardly any detail about what was put to the ALP by the ACTU, and uh, there has, uh, unless there are things going on privately inside union officials' meetings and organiser and delegate conferences that uh, I'm not aware of these days, it would be good to know if, there, if it was happening. But in in broad terms, if you check the ACTU website, there's no clear information about what specific reforms to the Fair Work Act the ACTU is pushing for. And this leaves me rather concerned. I don't think that is good, a good way to approach a strategy to change, to make the necessary changes to the Act. We do know from Brendan O'Connor, however, that the ALP is now committed to at least one reform, and that's to make it tougher, not to remove the right, but to make it tougher for employers to seek to cancel agreements during bargaining. In other words, to put yeah. people uh, back to the award. That's, yeah, that's you know, what they did at your, uh, AGL did to the workers at Loyang, where they just cut their, uh, cut their agreement and said you're on the modern award. Yeah, well, that, I'm not as aware of that detail, but that, that's another example of what has become widespread. In fact, I read that um, uh, since the big, the, the celebrated big decision that enabled employers to 
cancel an agreement and push people back to the award was the Horizon decision, which is about two, two and a half years ago. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. We covered that in Queensland. Since then, then there had been 864 cancellation of agreements approved. Yep. It's an outrage, isn't it? That's a tidal wave, and it is an outrage. And it's all made possible by this Act, which was established in 2009. Well, where to go from here? Because, I mean, what we've established is that the uh, actual economy of Australia is affected negatively by the fact that workers have lost their ability to actually negotiate fairly with employers. Yep. Well, uh, what we see, where to go from here? Uh, what we are seeing now are more and more uh, union leaders beyond just... Um, the excellent work that Sally McManus has been doing, uh, saying that the Fair Work Act needs to be reformed. And that's the first step. And, of course, every dispute that we see uh, is usually a case study, an example of why. At the present time, we have not gone to those acts of defiance that Sally has encouraged. It's been mainly... Uh, complaining about how the Fair Work Act is a failure at the moment and needs to be reformed. We are not yet moving to saying uh, and building workers' knowledge and awareness of what specifically we should be fighting for in terms of changes to the Act. Uh, And secondly, we are not building the... uh, We are not yet moving from complaining to building the type of defiant actions. Now, I I believe that that cannot be done quickly. It needs to be done in a stage... um, I'm not saying that every stage should be the same number of months or anything like that either, but it needs to be done in a, if you like, uh, over a period of time, uh, leading towards a culmination where there are much bigger types of actions that defy the Act. So we're not yet moving from complaint to uh, collective action that is defined and which does uh, reveal or enable workers to learn about and reveal their commitment to the specific changes that are necessary. However... That's what needs to be strategised very quickly instead of Mm. uh, what I think superficially looking from uh, both within and without is not being done with enough... Urgency. Yeah, right. But uh, and uh, an example of this is the fact that there are all these, like you said, there's all these uh, uh, disputes happening in silos, but they're yeah. effectively the same dispute, and hopefully they're kindling to a big bonfire. Really. Well, potentially that's what they should be doing. Mm. You, they, yeah, at the moment they're all silos. Yeah, people are shocked. It's a very good metaphor you've chosen. Mm. Right? Now, uh, at the moment, what we are not seeing enough of is how they can be connected and how the seeds of defiance can begin to sprout mm. uh, in the way in which those disputes are being managed. I, I think it's remarkable that for nearly... nearly uh, eight years, we've had these types of disputes and uh, uh, we haven't yet 
got to a point where we're uh, breaking down the walls of the silo. Mm, okay. And that's really, the, if, we to, if we're fair about defiance, that's what we have to work out what to do. Okay. And I think it's beholden on activists at all levels of the movement, not just the Sallies and the Jeds and the National Series of Unions, to turn their minds to that and to discuss it at union meetings, at picket lines and so on, about how to, how to build that and expand that level of defiance against the silos. The... Um, uh, the final thing to add, of course, yep. the penalty-based decision is due, I think, to start on Sunday, July the 2nd. Yep. So it's a month away today. Uh, and that's perhaps another discussion for next week or the following week about um, where that's all going. Keeping in mind that the latest research is showing, there's also the excellent research in Stanford, but the McKell Institute is saying that the penalty rates decision will take uh, $667 million, approximately, out of regional community spending. Jeez, now, that's what that unbelievable. Do? Small business in regional communities. Oh, that's just a killer. So perhaps... Um, How can uh, they vote for or, these people? Um, the, the, well, <laughs> that's, that's a good question, and that's one that needs to be um, uh, discussed in the communities. Yeah. Thanks, yeah. Don. You've uh, really given us a lot to think about. The Green Left Weekly Annual Comedy Debate with Rod Quantock is on again. Saturday, June the 17th at the Brunswick Town Hall. MC extraordinaire Rod Quantock will host two teams of comedians debating whether fake news is real news. Comedians include Sean Bedlam, Gabe Hogan, Shirley Hood, Kirsty Mack, Morvan Smith and Pauline Fartson, Hellchild. The Green Left Weekly Annual Comedy Debate Saturday, June the 17th at the Brunswick Town Hall, corner Sydney Road and Dawson Street, Brunswick. Doors open at 6.30pm. For bookings, go to trybooking.com forward slash Q-A-E-N or call 9639 8622. That's 9639 8622, a 3CR supporter. A weak solidarity, Bricky Tinlister, when there was light at the end of the tunnel over US of the UN of the US of the world, Supremo Donald Trump or the pause, sensible decision that the US of economy is far more important than the end of the world. Because if those great entrepreneurs whose sole ambition is to lift the world's poor out of poverty by, by providing them with the solution, good, clean coal, could not save the world, it would be the end of the world anyway. Light at, for despite our big supremo Malcolm Tun of Bull and Minister for Fossils Josh Friedem Icebergs, assuring us True Blue Aussie would push on in our attempt to wreck the True Blue Aussie economy, a more progressive and aware caring business class party poly Craig Killy the Planet was popping champagne corks and celebrating Donald's sensible and rational defence of the almighty dollar. And that's the good news for Craig Killy the Planet is chair of the Parliamentary Environment and Energy Committee. <laughs> Doesn't that fill us with hope? I've got a firm grasp of the energy bit, Craig boasted. And the light even brighter for, as Donald himself said, the US of is the world's leading protector of the environment, and he just loves the environment. 
an environment in which you can count the higher profits every night. Good. Very, very good. And how proud he will feel when, thanks to his saving the U.S. of economy, those coal miners can keep digging it out, even as the dystopia spreads and the ocean rises around them, because at least they'll have jobs, jobs, jobs. As the coal mine great corporate boardrooms in suits will have taken refuge on high ground somewhere safe. Well, tempor temporarily safe. Or they can join Donald sunbathing on the sand at the White House beach. If we believe pessimistically there is no light at the end of, that not only that, there is a train coming the other way, then we will be shattered by Malcolm's assurance, when we commit to an international agreement, we follow through. In other words, threatening our economy. Although a positive is that the government's non-policies plan to address that commitment will pose no threat to the fossils. Because as they say, we must address the hoax of climate change, the load of crap, without damaging the polluters' profits. So perhaps we should give Donald some marks for at least being honest about it. International agreements, Malcolm, we, we always follow through. We are a signatory to the Refugees Convention. Uh, hadn't realised it commits us to locking them up for life in a concentration camp or giving them the option of going back to what they're fleeing or no option, just sending them back. I can assure you our compassionate treatment of no proper papers, queue-jumping, illegal boat people complies with our international commitments. We have alerted Silk's legal opinion guaranteeing we are meeting our commitments. Uh, from Attorney General George Brandy's brain? Indeed, from no less a great legal mind as George. You must be disgusted at the treatment of these people we put to the Socialist Party would-be Minister for Concentration Camps, Razor Wire and Sink the Boats, Richard Mulls, the refugees. Indeed, disgusted. A Socialist Party government would oversee the concentration camps with real compassion. Hard as it is to believe, there are still people who reckon it's difficult to tell the difference between them. And on a positive note, the terrorist refugees threatening our way of life could soon be out of their misery anyway, thanks to Donald's big announcement as their island concentration camps sink into the briny. Some people, and this is true, said it was encouraging to hear Donald's Fry the Planet's thought-of speech because it shows he keeps his promises. Well, yeah. And as the self-effacing biggest supporter of the environment in the whole world, the mind boggles at what he might come up with if he wasn't. Back here, we recorded last week the exciting news that Big Dick Yora Pratt's scion Anthony had won the Super Filthy Richest of the Filthy Rich Award for the year. And we captured the inspiration it gives all of us to get out there and strive to make the list next year. Although in our case, we pointed out, when we try it, they arrest us for highway robbery. Whereas for them, it's smart business, community altruism, good for all of us. Bit like that evil commie Karl Marx's disgraceful comment that murder is not murder when it's done for profit. Killing workers is a bit of collateral damage, carrying no jail term, fighting for safety on the job to prevent death and injury is now the crime, costing the building unions in particular a fortune because of the shameful way they interfere with the filthy rich becoming filthy richer. Shame, building unions. Shame. A huge number of the top 200 made their fortunes from property. Well, 
they all have in one way or another, but a large number specifically. And what better incentive for the homeless to get out of their gutters and make something of themselves? If they can't make it onto the list by this time next year, it's their own fault. Strange, with all those fortunes made from property, that they are homeless. Surely there's a little corner somewhere amid all those cranes and construction and mountains of buildings which are the city skyline, but apparently not. Although that's no business of the property filthy rich anyway, and don't forget, the filthy rich, well, some of them, get together one night a year, replete with their state-of-the-art sleeping bags and warm, warm, thermal ski-attire insulation, and sleep in the open at the MCG or Dicklands or wherever to draw attention to the fact that they there are lazy, good-for-nothing homeless out there, so don't dare say they don't care. One of the filthiest rich of the filthy rich, former witch bank, which used to be our bank supremo, David Morey for me, who subsequently conducted a totally unbiased financial system inquiry for the government, hopefully, well I think we could confidently conclude, lucratively rewarded, described the bank levy that as those who know about these things in a state of apoplexy as a hate tax. Which is understandable, given we know just how much they do hate tax. David and other prominent exponents of the greatest little economic order of them all ordered big economic guru scuttled them more less son, sorry, sorry, advised to tone down his rhetoric about the banks. One investment banker saging, it's not helpful to attack any industry, let alone one that is critical to a proper functioning economy. A proper functioning? Particularly a proper functioning bank economy. One of Scuttlethem's outrageous comments upsetting them described the banks as an oligopoly attacking everyday true blue Aussies. That's outrageous, the poor dears chorused. You can't single them out. They're just one part of the oligopoly. But we can take heart knowing Scuttlethem so cares about everyday true blue Aussies which presumably means those who live here every day, as opposed to those who passed away yesterday and didn't make it to today, and or Scuttledem believes in vampires, which the filthiest of the filthy rich may believe in, as they continually tell us the tax office is a voracious vampire. That Uluru statement, well doesn't that in itself say it all? Who gave these people the right to change Ayers Rock's name to disrespect our proud true blue Aussie history. That airs rock statement, let's call it for what it is. The call for a treaty has so angered those who feel thwarted in their humanitarian attempt to help the Terranilius non-state non-people, particularly Deputy Big Supremo and Hayseed and Sheepshit Party Supremo Barnacle. See, just like the vote to give these land-grabbing threat to every suburban backyard non-people non-rights 50 years ago, which led to the massive advances we have seen in that time, another referendum to recognise their non-rights in the Constitution would lead to even greater advances. And in 50 years, who knows what more advances may be achieved through another token, sorry, critically important vote. So Barnacle is understandably upset at this slap in the face to decent true blue Aussies like, well, like Barnacle himself, who said he was all for the Constitution bit, but a treaty. You've got to have something you can sell to the true blue Aussie people, he spluttered. 
and clearly Barnacle knows you can't sell treaty to the true Blue Aussie people. Not like you can sell a coal mine. Oh, well, in this case, give away a coal mine, or, or even more correctly, finance a coal mine for the private filthy rich owner. Uh, but Barnacle, the true Blue Aussie people overwhelmingly oppose the coal mine. You haven't been able to sell it to them, so obviously it can't go ahead. So? They'll just have to live and bear it. Don't true Blue Aussie people want jobs, 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 and don't true Blue Aussie people want to lift the poor out of India out of poverty? Win-win? Hmm, good point. Barnacle's doctorate in stupidity is working a treat. Finally, on which, the brilliant show us why they deserve huge salaries by deep philosophical comments we would never think of without them. Like the head of the Dole Bludgers and Selfish Pensioners Department over claims that 42 million calls went unanswered. If someone rings 20 times, but if the first call was answered, the other 19 calls wouldn't happen, she said. Well, no. Doesn't that deserve every cent of her huge salary? Good morning. Hi, I'm... No, I didn't do testing. Oh, okay. Testing, testing. Okay. Hi, I'm Susanna Espy. And I'm Ida. And you're listening to 3C... Well, the last cap of the rank this morning is a word from human rights lawyer Rob Starry. He was part of a panel of lawyers, part of Melbourne activists' legal support and Amnesty International's launch of a specialist legal network to protect human rights. The initial activities of the network will focus on protecting protest rights and utilising and developing lawyers' skills and knowledge regarding activists' rights and how to support them. Rob Starry. I think in the 35 years I've been in practice... I don't think I've ever seen the police invested with so much power um, in terms of offences for which they can charge uh, people, coercive powers, the right to conduct interrogations in secret and um, being armed to the degree they are. They're effectively a paramilitary force and, of course, all of this is designed to um, suppress dissent. If you challenge any structure within this society and do so in a way that says I'm not satisfied with the status quo and I want to challenge um, the way we relate to each other, communicate, live, everything else, then um, you'll be subjected to scrutiny um, and possible charges. I'll give you an example, um, most recent example. Uh, Laws have been changed now where there's, um, and I'll confine this to public protest cases, in which if there was any volatility, the... Uh, protester usually um, would be charged with assault and resist police. It's a summary offence. Um, it usually carries a fine. The law and order lobby, of course, has just taken a stranglehold on the justice system at the moment, you know, through the police association and through other, um, through other agencies. And, and now there's an offence called um, resisting an emergency service worker uh, in the execution of their duty. Um, it's the same as an assault and resist in every other, in every other aspect but it's an offence for which, if you are convicted, carries a mandatory term of imprisonment of six months. And so that if they want to suppress dissent, um, what they do, I mean, we've seen this recently, is that they charge persons with resisting an emergency service worker. It was never really designed for that because the, the raison d'etre as to why it was introduced was to protect ambulance workers or, or paramedics who were coming to a scene and they were prevented from assisting um, someone who was uh, injured, 
uh, and um, subjected to you know, what was often gratuitous violence. And so um, they introduced this law, but of course it encompasses all emergency services workers, workers including police officers. That's just one example. So um, I'm going to give you some one piece of advice tonight is that if you're advising people in protest situations, whatever they should do, they should be peaceful and they should never resist um, police, however volatile the situation is. Because once you're charged with that offence, it's got a very low threshold of proof um, and, you, as I say, you, you um, face the risk of a mandatory term of imprisonment. When it's prosecuted by Victoria Police, of course, they've got a vested interest in protecting their members and because they are, generally speaking, conservative in nature, they're not going to withdraw a charge of that nature, so they often have to be litigated. The other thing that people don't often realise, of course, is when they're, they're asked to, to come in for an interview, for the purpose of an in- interview, they're placed under arrest and they're often, they don't often have that expectation that they're under arrest. They're not charged that they're placed under arrest for the um, purposes of that interview. And that can be quite debilitating. It can often um, act as an inducement for the person to be cooperative and make admissions and sometimes false admissions. Uh, And I've noticed that um, a little bit recently as well. We act for a lot of trade unions. We act for a lot of political activists. Um, We've acted for environmental activists in in times gone past. And, as I said, never... Never before have the police been invested with so much power. The other thing that they do, of course, is in most groups, um, and we've been involved in all of the terrorism prosecutions, from the Tamils to the Kurds to the Sunni Wahhabists, all those groups are infiltrated. And so there is information leakage coming out from all of those groups. And so what we say to those people is, firstly, never commit anything in writing. Once, once you email someone or you text someone, in terms of what you might be planning, those things are always discoverable and retrievable. Um, there's nothing that can be nothing that can be eliminated off the hard drive. Um, it's always it's always recoverable, and we see that in the terrorism cases, particularly the amount of resourcing that goes into those cases and the international cooperation or the agencies, particularly in the US, that provide that expert advice and recovery. So. Here's one thing I'm going to say to you. Never, never commit anything in writing, emails or text. It's completely fatal. And be careful of infiltration. Um, I remember, um, I'm not sure whether it was Environment Victoria um, in Gippsland in the anti-logging protest there, um, there was um, someone who'd infiltrated that group and effectively destabilised the group, destabilised the campaigns to protect... Um, what was national estate and, and um, ecologically sensitive old growth forest, and they had no idea. So that's another thing I'd say you need to be wary of. The other thing, of course, is intimidation. And we know that particularly in um, the northern suburbs with the, as I said, the, you know, I'm, I'm confining this to the Sunni Wahhabis group because they're the, they're the people that get charged, where the agencies, whether it's ASIO or whether it's um, you know, one of the plethora of counter-terrorism agencies in Big Pole or AFP, simply engage in intelligence gathering. I just want to talk to you because you know, I'm concerned about you and I don't like the fact that you're um, hanging out with whoever. There is no such thing as an off-the-record conversation because all of those conversations are recorded. Um, and so when we work particularly with the Islamic Council or other community-based organisations... 
they think they can disarm the, the policing agencies by cooperating with them and by by providing information to them that they think might be of assistance to particularly young men that might be going off the rails. It seems to us that um, there's no um, pure motive in what they do. It's just for intelligence gathering. And if they say that there's an off-the-record conversation, we know it often comes back to bite us or bite the client because um, there's a record of it. In terms of intimidation, um, another good example um, is the work we did with the Tamil community. 2007, um, uh, the Rajapaska regime in Sri Lanka said, we cannot defeat the Tamil Tigers militarily unless we break the back of the Tamil diaspora and the money that, that um, goes back to um, Tamil Elam for uh, military purposes. Um, and so mostly um, the Commonwealth nations, Canada, um, the UK uh, and Australia, were the targets of breaking the funding of the, the back for, um, for the Tamil diaspora because it's an offence, for instance, you might know this, even if you're sending money back to Tamil Elam for completely humanitarian purposes, um, medicine, hospital, hospitals, education, whatever it might be, it's an offence to do so because... You can't support a terrorist organisation directly or indirectly. Um, and so in 2007, um, Victoria Police and the AFP executed 100 warrants, thereabouts, on members of the Tamil community who were, through a subscription process, sending man money back to Tamil Leland. And, of course, they were all threatened um, that if they didn't cooperate with the process, they would be charged with supporting a terrorist organisation, funding a terrorist organisation and... And the other, so, um, the, the plethora of terrorism charges that one can face by supporting an, an organisation, and of course, because Australia and um, had no overarching protections in terms of a Bill of Rights, freedom of expression, freedom of assembly, um, uh, we we were identified as the country that should be used to break the back of that funding, and of course, that's what happened, and. Um, we know that now, um, in the month of May alone in 2009, 40,000 civilians, innocent civilians, really hardly got any currency in, in, in the West, but you know, over 40,000 um, innocent civilians were, were slaughtered um, in that annihilation of the Tamil Tigers. And we, and we were complicit, of course, in that, in that process. So um, um, they're the things that I really want you to be cautious about when you advise people. Um, I, you know, not for one moment suggesting that um, you should endorse or condone or, or provide tacit approval for any, any illegal activity. Um, but um, the techniques now to destabilise dissent or to undermine any dissent is, are phenomenal um, because, as I said, we've got the best resourced um, uh, policing and the whole range of agencies we've ever had, armed with the most incredible powers of um, arrest and, as I say, co coercive interrogation, no right to a lawyer unless, um, unless the um, ASIO uh, um, inspector uh, consents to that lawyer being um, able to give advice. Um, uh, no right against self-incrimination, no right to silence. Um, and, um, as I say... We know that whatever is elicited from those coercive interrogations then forms part of the brief of evidence in the prosecution of either that person directly or someone else 
despite the fact that they say um, there's no cross-contamination, um, we know for a fact that that occurs. So you've got to really be on your mettle um, when you're advising people, particularly, um, um, particularly political activists, but um, environmental activists as well. Um, you know, um, the environment is going to be the big issue in the next 20 years, dare I say, and I'm sure, um, I'm sure you'll hear more about that, but um, just to be extremely cautious. There's a reservoir of goodwill, I think, generally in the legal profession. People will give their advice and, and um, will appear, and, um, you know, we've called on pro bono services of the profession generally, and, of course, there's the community legal centres, which, you know, I think should be your first port of call, um, in terms of um, referral and advice and, and, and then if the need be for further referral. Well, that's it for this morning's show. We reported on the Student National Day of Action in May and the Fair Go for Pensioners rally, both in response to the federal budget, which is attacking both groups. We talked to Don Sutherland about workers' rights under the present situation of low wages and anti-solidarity laws. Kevin Healy summed up the week. And Rob Starry reminded us that we live in interesting times. We'll go out with Bart Willoughby from his latest CD, Resonance. The song is Woodskin Funk. (laughs) And uh, it's in honour of Martin Foley, Victorian Minister for the Destruction of Public Housing, who finally broke cover with the announcement of his briefing paper that calls for eight public housing estates to be demolished and given over to developers at mates' rates to rebuild with a mix of social housing, private apartments and some commercial development. Foley insists that tenants will be guaranteed a home in another office of housing estate. Solidarity Breakfast calls this a disgrace disgusting and shameful. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.